Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. When I was growing up, the son of parents, both of whom were from Fort Worth, Texas, we were Dallas Cowboys fans. And during those years, the Cowboys had a head coach named Tom Landry. Tom Landry was an icon in Dallas, head coach for 29 years. And there was also a certain aura around Landry. Landry always dressed well for game day, sport coat, tie, slacks, classy fedora. He had a certain demeanor on the sidelines. He didn't tend to get upset, yelling, shouting, pointing. And he also rarely, at least in public, smiled. In fact, one of his players, Walt Garrison, was asked after he retired, does Coach Landry ever smile? He said, I don't know. I only played there nine years. <laughs> Landry was an icon. So I was curious to read a piece some years ago written by the chaplain for the Cowboys who said that at the stadium, in one of the rooms there under the stadium, at one of the pregame chapels, apparently have chapels before football games. Friends, let's pray to love and care for each other for safety and protection. Before we go out there, and you know, anyway, they're having a chapel. And he said he had a guest speaker talking. And while the speaker was talking, there's this guy back here kind of in the corner working on some system for the PA for the day. And it was squawking and screeching and squealing. And so he's like over there two or three times. Can you, can you, we, we got a chapel, got a guest speaker, would you? Guy just kept on working. He said, suddenly, Coach Landry, who was apparently on the front row, got up, strode back there, and uttered four words. Turn that thing off. And he said, not only did he turn it off, he just quickly and quietly melted out of the room. And the chaplain said, I stood there thinking, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, what, what just happened here? Because I'm trying, and, nothing, and suddenly he says, and everything happens. Well, it's that experience, that experience right there of feeling like I don't really matter, I don't really count. I'm background, sidelined, forgotten. It's that experience that we're going to talk about this Advent season. If you've ever had that kind of feeling, if you're going through that feeling now, maybe worth taking the time to listen to the stories of a neglected man, a speechless priest, an aging prophet, and a worshiping widow. People who are the often overlooked characters of the first Christmas. Often forgotten. You know what it's like to feel forgotten, right? It's like walking into a restaurant and there's your former, formerly beloved on the arm of someone else. Going back to the office where you poured your life into the work and someone else's name is on the door. Looking at the team that you've spent years with, the team from the office, we won so many games together, a new captain, and in each case, you think, forgotten, gone. So we enter into that experience today by listening to Joseph, the neglected man, of Christmas. 
Now, Joseph, in a sense, is a central character. You go home, and you look at that nativity in front of your fireplace, and he will be one of the three key figures. There's the baby. There's the mother. And there's this man. What did he feel? I mean, when I look at that nativity scene and I see him there, I think that's kind of like me going to a wedding and somebody I don't know and somebody grabs me and says, here, the family pictures, you stand right here at the end. And I stand there and think, what am I doing in this picture? I have nothing to do with this. It's kind of like Joseph. He's mentioned by three of the Gospels. Mark doesn't give him much space at all. But Matthew and Luke, who tell the story of the birth of Jesus, they give him some time around the time of the nativity. Beyond that, it's mainly mentioning him as being in the line of progenitors, as what we would call the stepfather of Jesus. And then, shortly after that, he disappears from the scene and is not heard from again. The neglected man of Christmas. What was his experience? What might he have to say to us? What can he share? So we go to Matthew's gospel, the first chapter, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, to that passage read so well by these three young women from Pastor Doug's ministry. We go back to these verses, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So this week, while I've been reading and rereading and trying to marinate in this passage, I've been trying to enter into the experience of Joseph, not just what it says on the page, not just an understanding, but what would Joseph have felt? That's a tough reality to do, I've discovered, because there is such a big gulf between Joseph's world and ours. We have a great gulf between us that is chronological, 2,000 years. We have a great gulf between us that is geographic around the world. We have a great gulf between us that is cultural. Different cultures do things so differently. We can, we can hear it. We might experience it. We might grimace. We might laugh. But it's hard to have the real impact of what that means when it's not followed, experienced in our own lives. For example, I want to read you a paragraph. It comes from a book I talked with you about several weeks ago, Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey writing a book called Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. 
So in this book, they're writing in this particular chapter about the influence of the mind on pain. It's really stunning, the role that the mind plays in terms of elevating or diminishing pain. So with that in mind, listen to what they wrote. Some cultural responses to pain nearly defy belief. Societies in Micronesia and the Amazon Valley practice a childbirth custom called cuvade, the French word for hatching. The mother gives no indication <clears throat> of suffering during delivery. She may break from work a mere two or three hours to give birth and then return to the fields. By all appearances, it is the husband who bears the pain. During the delivery and for days afterwards, he lies in bed thrashing about and groaning. Indeed, if his travail seems unconvincing, other villagers will question his paternity. <laughs> Traditionally, the new mother waits on her husband and sits by his side, the poor guy, to entertain the relatives who drop by to offer him congratulations. Where was that? No, never mind. Can you imagine? You say, how can that be? I don't get that. That makes no sense to me. It's hard to enter into the emotional experience of that when it is so distant from our experience. Just so with Joseph. The passage we just read from Matthew places Joseph in an extremely delicate position. It could, it could even be a life or death decision. Very difficult. You say, how can that be? Listen to the words of New Testament scholar Robert Mounts as he writes about this. He says, Jewish weddings involve three separate steps. First, there was the engagement. This was often arranged by the parents or by a professional matchmaker while the couple were still children. At a later stage came the betrothal, a legally binding relationship lasting for one year. During this period, the couple lived apart and had no sexual relations. Should either party not wish to go ahead with the marriage, a divorce was required. The penalty for sleeping with a virgin betrothed to another man was stoning for both. In Deuteronomy 22, she's actually called another man's wife. They're not married yet, but that's what she's called. The third step was the marriage itself. It is during the second stage, the betrothal, that Mary was found to be pregnant. Now, we read that, and it's hard to digest the profound implications it had for Joseph and his struggle at deciding what to do. In our day and time, a couple who's engaged to be married, and she gets pregnant, and he said, what? You're what? Wasn't me. Well, then, usually you just break up or go on Jerry Springer. And that's kind of the end of it. Not so in the world of Joseph. Joseph's world, you notice what verse 19 says. He was faithful to the law. He knew the law. Required stoning for such. Now, it is true, it is absolutely true, that by the time of Jesus, hundreds of years after the original giving of the law, this had mostly disappeared. But what had not disappeared was the fact that she was now susceptible and actually almost certainly vulnerable to heaps of shame 
upon her. And in a shame and honor culture, which that was, a culture where you would do almost anything to avoid shame and almost anything to garner honor, in a shame and honor culture, that would be absolutely, utterly devastating to her. In fact, had that happened... It's possible that rather than all the honorific titles that have been given to Mary over all the centuries, the Holy Mother, the Blessed Virgin, all those great names, instead of that, the name would have been the woman with the scarlet letter. How would that have influenced the life of Jesus? Joseph is in a deep predicament. You know the saying, like father, like son? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, poor Austin, but just go with me. Like father, like... We, we would all say, yeah, I, th I think that's true. Well, when I read this passage, I have a different question. Would it also be true to say, like stepfather, like stepson? Now, I say that for a specific reason. It's what happens in verse 19. Now, remember, verse 19 is before Joseph has his dream. It's before the angelic visitor comes to him and says, Joseph, ease off, take comfort. This is from God. God is about to do a new thing. This is before that happens. We are still with Joseph in the midst of his quandary, his crisis. Remember, crisis doesn't change us. We can change after the crisis if we have time, but the crisis itself is not what changes us. It reveals us. Smash your hand with a hammer. You aren't changed, but you are revealed. Joseph is in a crisis. Before he gets the divine word, we see his heart, this neglected man of Christmas. That verse tells us there are two aspects to who Joseph is. The first is he was faithful to the law. He wanted to do what was right. That mattered to him. But the other is he realized that the letter of the law would be devastating to a human being for whom he cared. And so on the one hand, you have he was faithful to the law, and on the other, you have he did not want to expose her, even if that's what the law required. That's Joseph. And we know before the angelic visitor that he planned to follow this one. He was going to do whatever he did quietly to protect her. Do you suppose it's true to say, like stepfather, like stepson? Do you suppose that after a day of work in the carpenter shop, we know Jesus, pardon me, Joseph was a carpenter. We believe Jesus was exactly the same. After they shook the shavings from their garments and sat down to just 
maybe drink, have a drink and talk and think about the day and about life. Do you suppose Joseph taught him? Do you suppose Mary ever said to Jesus, Jesus, you know who your father is. But that man right out there, the choice he made changed my life and yours too. Do you suppose that happened? Now, I'm asking you that for a specific reason out of the Gospel of Matthew. Because later, when Jesus will preach, he will preach what Joseph did. Just three, four chapters after this moment, in the Gospel of Matthew, we come to the first sermon of Jesus, one of undoubtedly his most important sermons in his entire ministry. It's his kingdom manifesto, his inaugural address. He's going to tell his followers, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and this is what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom. We know it as a Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters long, Matthew 5, 6, 7. Matthew 5, a full third of the sermon, is taken up largely with two statements. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you over and over again. In the background, maybe in the sh under the shade of a tree, was there a stepfather listening, saying yes? You have heard that it was said, Joseph was faithful to the law. But I say to you, Joseph was merciful and kind. Like stepfather, like stepson. Could it be? Now, don't think that Jesus is playing fast and loose with the law because he's actually deepening the requirements of the law. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, it's what enters through the eyes and gets fondled in the heart. That's what matters. You have heard that it was said, don't murder. But I say to you, it's the envy and jealousy that brew in the soul that are truly destructive. I wonder, as Jesus preached that, might there have been somewhere off the stage to the left a neglected father, stepfather, saying, I've lived that. The words are the words of New Testament scholar Eugene Boring, who writes this, Joseph stands at the beginning of Matthew's gospel as a model of what Jesus hoped for all disciples, indeed for each reader of the gospel. Joseph is already, the, already facing the, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, tension that will be displayed in the Sermon on the Mount. The tension between the prevailing understanding of God's commandments and the new thing that God is doing in Jesus. 
by Joseph's decision to obey the startling and unexpected command of God, he is already living the heart of the law and not its letter, already living out the new and higher righteousness of the kingdom in a moral, difficult moral situation. He attends to the voice of God, and he is willing to set aside his previous understanding of God's will in favor of this living and saving God. That's what Joseph is doing. And that's what Jesus later will preach. Like stepfather. Like stepson. You know, there was one other thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus also said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Love. It's Christmas. We love stories. I love stories. Maybe a story at Christmas is in order. The name Gordon MacDonald is a very well-known name to anyone who reads the Christian literature on leadership, on administration, on the inner life, on pastoring. For decades, he's written. So a story from Gordon MacDonald, from his pen, from the Annals of Leadership Journal now quite some years ago. MacDonald writes this. I grew up a pastor's son. My father's church, located next to our home, was often used for meetings of pastors belonging to a certain denomination that was passing through considerable theological controversy. Often I would sneak into the church and listen to these pastors vent their frustrations and plot their strategies for the upcoming denominational conference. The name of one denominational leader was frequently mentioned, and when his name was spoken, it seemed to me as a small boy as if the devil himself was being described. Over time, that name became associated with all forms of ecclesiastical evil. In my mind, he became the Antichrist, a heretic, and a persecutor of all good people, meaning all those who agreed with these pastors and my father. Years passed. And the boy who overheard those passionate, often hateful exchanges became a man and a pastor. Occasionally, memories of those pastoral meetings in the name of the man who was so often vilified would pop up on the screen of my memory. One thing for sure, I had been taught not to like him. Then one day when I was in my mid-30s, I was given a powerful lesson. It happened in my office one afternoon when a full-fledged nor'easter had blown in and was raging outside. My assistant came to my office door and said, Gordon, there's a man out here who would like to meet you. His name is... I was startled. It was the name I'd heard so often in those meetings when I had played the eavesdropper. Finding it hard to believe that we were talking about the same man, I asked, what does he look like? Is he young or old? 
Quite old, my assistant answered. He's aware that you're busy and he'd only like a minute or two. Now, wildly curious, I followed my assistant down the hall to the reception area. Standing, waiting, was a man wearing a rain-soaked tan trench coat. When he removed his equally drenched hat, I saw silvery gray hair. I introduced myself, and he responded by offering his hand and that well-remembered name. Mr. McDonald, he said. I'm from the West Coast, but I'm in Lexington today visiting relatives. For the last few years, I've been reading your articles and now your books. I determined that if I ever got back here, I'd try to meet you and tell you how much your writing has meant to me. I was stunned. Wordless. This old man whose name had been chiseled into my boyhood soul as being liberal in theology, conniving in church politics, power-hungry in leadership, here he stands telling me that he has come to express appreciation for some of the things that I had written. I asked for his wet coat, offered him some coffee, and led him to my office. Our conversation went far beyond a minute or two, an hour perhaps. We spoke of our parallel lives as pastors, our appreciation for the privilege of being a spiritual resource to people, the joys of preaching the Bible. We talked about Jesus and how one grows in older years to reverence him more and more. And then once again, my visitor spoke of my writing and how he wanted to encourage me to keep developing what he believed to be a gift from the Holy Spirit. How did this man know that on that very day I was going through a mini crisis of confidence? How could he have intuited that I was an inch away from dropping the writing component out of my life completely? What moved him to make his way through a furious storm, betting on the chance to meet with a kid who needed to hear from someone older and wiser that he was actually capable of making a difference. How odd of God to send someone that I'd been taught not to like to offer this word of courage. When our conversation ended, he asked if he could give me a blessing. Gladly, I assented. Much like a priest, he put his hands on my shoulders and with profound intercessory words lifted me to God. When he finished, he gave me his blessing. After his amen, I said, before you go, there's something I must tell you. And I confessed how I had been taught not to like him. When I finished, I said, I can't tell you how much it means to meet you and appreciate the kind of man you really are. Who is your father? 
And what was the group that met at your home, he asked. I told. Ah, he smiled and said gently, I remember them. They didn't like me very much, I'm afraid. And with no further word of defense or explanation, he made his exit. I never saw him again, although we corresponded for several years until he died. Usually his letters abounded with affirmation for something I'd written and what it had meant to him. And always, as he'd done on that stormy afternoon, he would urge me to keep on writing, keep expressing my thoughts, keep speaking to things that I thought were important. And I have. This rich, invaluable experience brought to me by a man I'd been taught not to like. When I think of him, I do it with much gratitude. But I also ask myself if I ever use my little soapbox of influence to purposely or inadvertently teach someone not to like or respect a person upon whom God just might be smiling. Like stepfather, like stepson, he was faithful to the law. He was merciful and kind. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye. But I say to you, love. He's the neglected man of Christmas. But if you look at the ministry of his stepson, you might often see him there lurking in the shadows. So for you who feel forgotten, neglected, pushed aside, just keep living the faithful, kind life God has called you to live. Because you just never know when you might change the world. Gracious God, thank you for Joseph. Gracious God, thank you for Jesus. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.